Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. Listeners who have been following the saga of Jeff's vacation know that uh, we talked once about preparing Jeff's trip, and we talked another time about Jeff coming back. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Jeff's jet lag. Have you gotten over your jet lag yet? <laughs> I'm sure everybody really wants to hear all about my jet lag. Uh, yes, I feel like I'm finally over my jet lag. And if you remember in the last episode, you said something like that you find it usually takes like a day for every hour of time difference. And I yeah. had a moment of panic because I was like, oh, no, that's that's like nine hours. But I thought, no, Kirk must have been exaggerating. And – Yep. No, not at all. Like that whole week, I was kind of a mess. Yeah. In fact, I edited our last podcast, I think the day that we recorded it, which I usually don't do, just because my brain could not make words for for writing, for the projects that I'm working on. So I was like, all right, I need to do something. I'll, I'm just going <laughs> to edit this because I could I could handle the, the audio yeah. editing. That was fine. But, oh, man. Yeah, jet lag is terrible. Anyway, that's the end of the jet lag episode. Um, what we wanted to talk about, um, Jeff had an idea. I want to read what you wrote in an email you sent me this morning, so late last night, your time, as we were looking for a topic. In our last episode, you asked me if I ever went out on vacation without the intent to take photos, and that stumped me for a minute. Maybe there's a discussion to be had about whether photographers can really turn that on and off. I think I'm at the point where it's difficult for me to not see things photographically, Although that's the good thing about having an iPhone camera at all times, too. So we want to talk about the photographer's eye. And we've talked many times about how you develop the photographer's eye. But do we get to the point where we can't turn it off and you're constantly looking out in that rectangular frame as if as if you've got blinders on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is is, is developing that eye and how, you know, I know we've said this a hundred times that once you start doing photography and you're deliberate about making photos, then you do see the world in a different way. And that's great. But can you turn it on and off? I, I sort of assumed that I could, but all through my trip, and I think maybe not necessarily when I'm in my house, but when I leave the house, when I'm walking around, there is that aspect of I don't know, like a little photographer's radar where my eyes are darting and and noticing things that I wouldn't notice otherwise. And that, that's a good thing. That That is a helpful, uh, creative outlet. But can it also be a curse? Because then you are always on the lookout for something else. And I don't think it's it's to the point where you know, I'm not paying attention to uh, street signs and, and, and walk signals and things like that. It's not like in a dangerous way. But like, can you just turn that off? And I'm not really sure if you can. So I'm curious if you can, because you, you, you brought that up. And literally, if you go listen to our last episode, there are a few seconds where I am just sort of flabbergasted and had to think about it really hard. The photographer's radar, I think that's a great expression. And I've got a photo that I took last December. And I woke up one day in my bedroom and the sunlight was coming in on a door. And I thought, wow, what an amazing image, the light and the shadow and the lines. And I had my iPhone and boom, I took a picture of it. And I think it's quite interesting. It's not 
I would have rather been further back. I would have rather had more space around the door, et cetera, et cetera. But it was that radar that as I was, mm-hmm. when I got out of bed, I saw this and immediately said, there is a photograph there. Now, this doesn't happen to me often. I'm out in the garden, I'm walking around the village and I just spot something. It's, it's, it's a confluence of lines and shapes and light and shadow usually for me. I, I'm not looking for subjects as such, but yeah, it's all of a sudden that's something to take a picture of. So th- the real question is, can you go out without a camera, see these things and be frustrated? Or if you go out and you've always got an iPhone, you know you have a backup to take photos, but can you even go out and walk anymore without an iPhone, without having a camera at all? That would be the real test. That would be the real test. Uh, I think yes. Yes, I can, but I would feel that limitation of, but well, actually, I'm sort of curious if I would see more because then I, I would know that there are things that I can't shoot. You know what I mean? That that sort of, I don't know, maybe that's negative reinforcement or something where because I don't have the means to do it, maybe my brain would be more active to it. Right. And because you don't have a camera, you'll see a hundred things to take pictures of. <laughs> exactly. And you'll just be regretting it. Exactly. And if you do have the camera, you don't find anything to take pictures of. I think there's some of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, part of this is is gear. You know, we we try not to talk too much about gear or focus on gear, but it's having a camera of some sort. Now, in the past, if you wanted to be deliberate about shooting, you would take a camera. And I remember at one point there was a photographer who said, you know, he he just always took his DSLR with him. And like I tried to do that for a while, but a DSLR is big. It, it's just it, it's a lot. And this was a photographer. Uh, I can't even remember his name now, but you know he he would also sell stock photography and you know just find shots of you know uh, public markets and fruit and things like that, which would work really well for stock photography. So like that fit for him. Yeah, but maybe his eye was looking for stock photography as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So if if your eye is looking for architectural photography, when you're in a city, that's what you're going to be looking for. If you're looking for candid street photography, you're going to be looking for that. You're not going to be spotting the buildings or the fruit. No, that's a good point. But could you turn that off? I mean... That's the big question. I don't have much trouble, but then I don't get out and around as much as you do, especially since COVID. Um, I certainly haven't traveled anywhere um, important in a long time. Mm-hmm. If, if we take a trip to a nearby village to go wandering, I'm always going to take a camera because it's an opportunity, since I don't take a lot of photos, to take photos, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and I think that's a key thing that you just said right there. It's an opportunity. You know, me being on vacation was a, a huge photographic opportunity, not just because I was I was not working, but because I was in Paris and I was in Rome and Venice. And so, you know, of course I want to have something that will capture either things that are that are really photographic, things that I want to deliberately shoot like sunrises and and you know, that's a lot of deliberateness there. But also just to show that I was there and I knew that relatives at home wanted pictures of what we were doing. Uh, the, the funny thing about this is I think 
my photographic eye, photo brain got a little bit in the way because my wife's photos are much better in terms of documenting what we did, <laughs> uh, pictures of, you know, like like the family, the kids doing things. Like, Well, yeah, but that's what her photographer's eye was interested in. Absolutely. Yours was interested in different things of the light and the shadow and the shapes and the sunset and the sunrise and the quirky people taking selfies and things like that. Yeah. And also, I think when I was out and about and and maybe... What's a good way to say this? When I was bored. <laughs> mm. There were times, you know, in, in the middle of the afternoon, uh, I, I was sort of tired. My brain would sort of drift toward trying to find something that was, you know, more photographic. And that could be just, you know, the way light was hitting on a canal in Venice or, you know, a, a lot of light and shadow, uh, a little bit of, of, people watching slash street photography, but I didn't do a whole lot of that. I think partially because it's really outside my comfort zone and partially because my brain doesn't really look for that. Like you were saying, you know, people who look for architectural or so I was looking more toward interesting shadows and, and, and streaks of light and maybe bits of color. But I don't think my brain ever just said, all right, I can't look at anything photographically anymore. Sort of like when I was in museums, my brain definitely got to the point where I couldn't appreciate the art anymore because I I had intaken so much art, which is a great feeling, but it's 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 surprisingly exhausting. And so then my my brain would just sort of drift to the thing that I know, which is all right, I'm going to look and see these shadows and look at the way uh the sun is reflecting off of these windows, that sort of thing. Well, I wonder how much of your photographer's eye on this trip was a sort of rationalization for having brought so much gear. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes to the previous episode where you have the photo of all your gear. And I mean, it's a lot. You could have had a lot less, but it's true that, come on, you go someplace with all that gear, you want to use it, right? Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to get defensive here. It wasn't really that much gear compared to what I, I I could take or what I have taken on other trips. So, yeah, but still, this was an international trip. This was an international trip. Uh, there was some gear. I never felt like, oh gosh, I haven't used this this piece of gear yet. But hold on, and don't you, anytime you go on a photo trip and you bring a bunch of gear, you want to use all that gear? Maybe not every single lens, but it, you want to make use of everything you have. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of there's a recent Rolling Stones documentaries on the BBC, and there's one about each of the four members, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, and Charlie Watts. And now, a band that I don't really know much about is Rush. And you look at the drummer there and he's got a drum kit with about 800 pieces that, that, <laughs> oh, yeah, that circles that. around in the air. And Charlie Watts, he's got three drums and four cymbals. And right, it's that kind of thing. It's like <laughs> someone who's really good can do it with a single camera and lens. But someone else, they've just got to, I'm not criticizing all your gear for your trip because you were in different contexts and situations, right? Sure, but if you're sure. just out walking around, the, you, you have the photographer who's got the three cameras around his neck and a whole bunch of different kinds of lenses. When the good photographer's just got one camera and one lens and doesn't really need to worry about the extra gear. Well, so I don't think it's so much as a, a justification for bringing a lot of gear. I think it's 
I would say it's more defensive, which is, have I brought enough stuff that will let me capture what I need to capture? No, it, it's more, will I not be able to take a photo because I didn't bring this piece of gear? Exactly. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's say you go on like a specific photo trip where I would take more lenses because I don't know if I will just be shooting things that are wide. I'm like, Well, for example, whenever I've gone on like a photo workshop or like the trip that I took to the Sierra Nevada in the fall, you know, I, I specifically rented a 100 to 400 millimeter lens because I knew that there would be times when I would want that, that super telephoto view of things. And, and it's great to have. I've never quite been able to justify actually purchasing it Although I think if I ran it a couple more times, it'll probably get to the cost of what it would have taken to buy it in the first yeah. place. But, um, you know, I, I don't have a need. It, I would like to have that lens. I would like to own that lens, but it just doesn't come up often enough that I can really justify it. And so when I'm doing something that's, that's even more deliberative photo-wise, then I'll make sure that I have, you know, my 56 millimeter prime and I'll have a 12 millimeter wide angle and my 18 to 135 sort of all purpose. And, and, and you know, just put up with the fact that I'm carrying more gear and I'm going to be switching lenses more often. Like that's sort of on on the extreme end. And so now just going out on vacation, I wanted to make sure that I had the ability to take photos and and not miss things. And so it's almost a, like I said, it's almost defensive. It's, am I going to find myself in a situation where I don't have the right lens, I don't have the right camera, and I've lost a shot because of it? And honestly, from this last trip, I think there were only two two shots that I regret. One shot was... A great picture, and I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, when we were in Venice, um, I wanted to take a family picture. So my, my family was on one of the little bridges that go over a, a side canal, and I was on another bridge, and the the sunlight was really great. The clouds were starting to get some color and reflected in the water and the beautiful buildings. And so I took a picture of them on the other bridge. And it's great, except that I only had my X100V, my little compact at the time, which uh, I've already forgotten. What's the lens on that? It's like a basically... It's a 23, so a 35 millimeter equivalent. 35 millimeter, yeah. And so, you know, the family is is pretty small in the frame. And even if I tried to to enlarge it, uh, it's not really that that favorable. And so what, what you get is this pretty picture and you can tell that it's a family but they're they're really small like then that's the only time i really wish that i'd had my other camera with my zoom lens just to get a little bit more reach there i think the problem here is how much is your life ruined if you quote unquote miss a photo 
you know what? It's not ruined at all. Exactly. And I think that's the key here. We, we keep thinking, oh, if only I got this photo, this one, oh, this one's going to be better. But no, I can't get this one. And it's no go. Oh, I missed it. And you kicked yourself <laughs> and you carried 80 pounds of gear and you didn't get the one photo that would have changed your life. There's an article in The Guardian today, um, an interview with Fernando Shiana, who I don't really know very well. And the pull quote uh, used for a headline, I've taken a million pictures, 50 were good. Wow. Oh, yeah. Definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah. And so if you think about what a good photograph is, who some photographers said you're lucky to get 10 good photos a year, right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we're not talking about professionals and fine art photographers. We're talking about, on the one hand, you're documenting a vacation. On the other hand, you're trying to get better photos. But it's like, it doesn't matter. You're right. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But I think maybe this is a sense of, of, of I don't know, photographer's anxiety, traveler's anxiety, because part of you wants to. Here's what it is. It's photo FOMO. Photo FOMO. <laughs> photo fear of missing out. Uh-huh. No, actually. I'm going to trademark that. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's what it is. Photographers, uh, there's a magazine here. I think it's called Outdoor Photography. And each issue has like six places to visit with maps, how to get there, difficulty of getting there. And here's the shot you want to get, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a checklist for photographers to get the specific location. You know, when we talked to Quentin Lake on on the show, we talked about that, that he would get someplace, he would shoot that specific well-known location, but then he'd look for all these other details. And I think some photographers, they're only going to get that Eiffel Tower picture. And frankly, your, your Eiffel Tower picture was not the kind that you're going to blow up into a poster, but it has more character than a lot of the other pictures. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know. I just see it as, again, this isn't the, the photography that I do. I'm not really into that sort of vacation photography, landscape photography. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking for smaller, abstract geometry, things like that. So I don't really have the same feeling. Mm-hmm. But okay. So two things. One, I think when you're looking for those smaller geometry abstract things, I almost wonder if that's a little more difficult because that that's more deliberate because you are, are are looking for tiny details. You're not just saying, oh, here I am and here's the sunrise and here's the Eiffel Tower. Uh, so in, in some ways that could make it a little bit more difficult for you. But I, I think this is the other thing about the, the, the FOMO and – Maybe this is is uh, putting forth too much of my own bias, but so many times I have taken a shot that I thought was fine, or maybe it'll just be like like the one extra shot before I leave, and then I'll go back and realize that was the best shot that I took, or you know one of the best shots that I took, and so I think that feeds into the the fear of missing out because yes, I would say. Maybe 60% of the time, I can tell if the shots that I'm getting are good and, you know, big, big sliding scale of, of, of what good means. But sometimes you can just feel it like, like the sky is amazing and a reflection is amazing or a shadow is, is perfect. Uh, but there's also that, that sense of, well, maybe this other thing that I took that I didn't even think about is actually also really good. So maybe that'll happen again, that, that, that spontaneous 
you know, lightning in a bottle kind of photography moment. And what if I don't have the gear for that? Oh, no. See? And it's that, <laughs> it's that, 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 you, you've that missed anxiety, that one right? photo that could change the world, right? That's exactly, the thing. Exactly. Because you, you don't know when your great picture is coming. Exactly. And, yeah. but, but that's sort of the fiction that I think a lot of us operate yeah. under because, you know, the reality is you take more pictures, you get better at your craft and that's going to lead to better pictures, sure, et sure. cetera, et cetera. But there's still that anxiety. Interesting corollary. I was listening to a talk by a photographer who was talking, who's, who's older than us, so he mostly shot film. And he was saying that with students, he would find, so they'd be shooting a roll of 36 pictures, and that with students, he'd find that the best pictures were always like the 35th and the 36th picture on the roll. Oh, nice. It's like you're starting out and you're just kind of feeling your way around a subject. And then when you know you've only got a couple pictures left, then you've really got to concentrate and get the right picture. In some ways, for us with digital, we can just, you know, snap, snap, snap. And it makes it even harder to have that, you know, how can you set your gaze so perfectly to really get the right photo? You just take 10 more and hope. Oh, I think that's a huge part of it, actually, because, A, you have the latitude to take a whole bunch of different things and see what happens. But also, you have so many shots that maybe you don't really know which one was the good one. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of, of, of hit rate and in terms of having the opportunity to get your picture, especially, you know, if you're in a situation where you're shooting in burst mode and you're, you're taking pictures of people and, you know, shot five is much better than shot seven because somebody was looking at you or, you know, those kind of things. That's, that's great. But you are also, you have that, that, that latitude or that, that slipperiness of, uh, you know, well, I'm sure something will be good in here, right? Right, exactly. So you're not focusing at any given time. You're diffusing your belief that you're a good photographer and hoping that you get lucky. That's a good way of putting it. Rather than taking the time to really find the composition. In some cases, you don't have time to react, right? You have sure. to shoot quickly. But in others, you've got plenty of time. And maybe with digital, it's too easy to just shoot, 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 and then try and figure out afterwards what works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea of, I mean, I'm the guy who doesn't spend a lot of time. I'm walking. I see something interesting. Take one or two shots. I don't do 10 shots but I don't spend a lot of time. And that's something I want to try and develop is if I go someplace to photograph, sit and look for 10 minutes yeah. before I do anything and get the feeling of it. Yeah. Before the show, we were talking about the serendipity of having a camera in our pocket at all times. And I don't really think of my iPhone as a camera, but there are times when it's handy and all of a sudden I can get an interesting photo. So we've got, we're going to put two photos in the show notes that I took um, we had a heat wave last week. So this was what, about the 16th, 17th of July. It hit 38.5 degrees where I am. It's 101 in that other calculation range. Oof. It was about midnight that night when it got really cool. It got down to about 20. So under 70 degrees. And I was sitting outside. I took a flashlight with me, had my iPhone. I was sitting in a comfortable chair and I put the flashlight up and I saw all these 
bugs moving around in the flashlight. So I took my iPhone and I held it up and I shone the flashlight on the tree that goes over our house. And the iPhone took a photo about one second. So you get all these really cool trails of the bugs flying in the light of the flashlight. It's really cool. I could never have imagined making a photo like this saying, I want to make this photo. It was the chance of seeing this come up. Another photo the same evening was just of the the house and the big pine tree and the sky and the stars. And iPhone night mode is really impressive because the stars are just coming through so bright and, and you can see what it looked like that evening, even though it's actually brighter on the house than it was, you know, so it brings up the the light a little bit to try and make it look like it's not night. Yeah. But that was the kind of thing where I'm just sitting out, just happen to have a camera. Here's a reason to take a couple of pictures. Uh-huh. Now, the question is, when you saw that 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 photographic moment, right, you started playing around with that. Did that inspire you? Oh, I should go inside and grab my other camera. No. No, not at all. No. And, and there's one, there's, well, there's two reasons. One is that the iPhone night mode is quite good, low ISO, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The other is that I have a tremor. An iPhone's not heavy. It's got optical stabilization. My Q2 monochrome does have optical stabilization, but it's quite heavy. Mm-hmm. So I'm holding the flashlight with one hand, the camera with the other. I just didn't want to get into all of that because then, All of a sudden, we've gone from me just sitting in the chair, drinking a gin and tonic with a flashlight and an iPhone to, okay, I got to start pulling gear out. And then it becomes serious. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, to to do it right, you would have had to get a tripod. You would have had to, uh, you know, set it up. And then suddenly it's it's not inspiration anymore. Now it's a project. And I can totally see you doing that maybe, you know, later in the summer when you yeah. had another gin and tonic, and you're like, okay, now I'm going to try and see what I can do, set you know a 10-second exposure, like go down that path. But yeah. you had a moment, and you were able to capture it because you had a camera in your pocket. Let's put it this way. Think, thinking of it like you're just saying, what I did was playing, mm-hmm. not working. If I had to go get my gear and tripod, then it becomes work, right? It becomes work, yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I find that even though I totally believe that the iPhone is a real camera and all of that, whenever I was shooting with it, I, again, I'm going back to this, this, this deliberateness. I almost never use anything other than the built-in camera app, even though I have Halide and I have the, the camera features built into Lightroom. I, I must have, you know, 10 different camera apps on my phone. But... There were definitely times when I probably could have. And I think I remember at least one time I was thinking to myself, oh, I should probably, you know, take some comparative photos with Allied, you know, different raw processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But again, that sort of bordered on the, oh, geez, now I'm working and I didn't want to be working. And so I think all of my iPhone photos were just taken with with the built-in camera app because when I was using that, I was doing something quickly, you know, lift up the phone, swipe right on the home screen, get to the camera, take pictures, or it was in a situation where I knew that the, the iPhone would do a better job. Like, for example, we went to the, the Paris catacombs, which is, you know, underground, very dark, lots of skulls. And I just knew that even my my X100V with its, you know, F2 aperture, like it, it, it's a really bright camera, but 
it just wouldn't it wouldn't compete unless I was doing something to stabilize it and have long exposures. And again, then we're working and th- there's no room to do that. And you got people behind you and in front of you. And so the phone, I took a couple of really nice pictures of the catacombs just with the phone. And that was perfect. I'm not going to you know, probably do anything more than put them in the show notes here, but I've got it. The one that you're putting in the show notes that I'm looking at is really quite impressive. Oh, thank you. Um, the, the light coming around the corner, the curve wall of the skulls and the bones. I would maybe dial down the light a little bit, make it a little bit spookier. Mm-hmm. But I, I really like that the, um, the texture of all of that that you captured. And it's true that you got that with the iPhone because of what the iPhone does. If you zoom in and you look close, if you look at the edge on the right where it comes over where the light part of the ground is. You see what I mean? There's a halo Mm -hmm. there. And that's just the iPhone. That's just, you know, what you have to deal with with this type of photo. But ignore that and just look at the photo for that shape and that that massive pile of bones and skulls. It's just, ooh, chilly. (laughs) Well, and that was definitely a time when I wasn't expecting too much photographically. And so I was looking for, like my little photographic eye was looking for things where the shadows would be interesting. Yeah. And because, I mean, as much as I enjoyed going to the catacombs, there comes a point where you're like, oh, look, there's a few tens of thousands more bones. Yeah. And so when you saw something different like this, like this curve, that's what sparked a little something, my my interest in taking a picture of it. Okay. Should we move on to snapshots? I think we should move on to snapshots. One of the great things about going on this trip is that I have a bunch of things that I can use for snapshots. <laughs> so <laughs> all that gear that, that you haven't that talked about gear, yet, yeah. you've, you've got for months. So <laughs> basically, we'll take that picture and I'll just go row by row and <laughs> describe. Every, no, I won't. Uh, but what I did get, uh, obviously, I'm in the United States. I was traveling to Europe. I needed some way to uh, handle the power conversion. And after doing some research, I got this little uh, adapter. Now, in the past, you know, years and years ago when I went to to Europe, you would just get like a set of little plug adapters. And actually, I I got some of those too just as as a backup. But uh, what I used the most was this. uh, It's from a company called Epica, E-P-I-C-K-A. And it's an Epica Universal Travel Adapter. What's nice about it is it's it's a little block that has, you know, like different prongs that slide out depending on where you're at. But it also has four USB-A plugs and one USB Type-C plug. So basically whenever we, you know, went back to the hotel or, you know, went to the, the different uh, locations, all I had to do was plug this into one outlet and I could – connect everything that I needed to recharge to it, my phone, uh, you know, my watch charger, my um, my iPad, uh, camera batteries. And there's also a plug on the front of it that has, you know, a, an input so you can plug in like, like, like a regular power plug. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it just worked. It's only, it's like $24. Um, it's not super compact. I'm sure there are some people who would you know, want something a little bit smaller. But for what it offered, it meant I didn't have to take a whole bunch of power bricks. Uh, it, it just worked out really nice. All right. So, Kirk, 
I was about to say, what do you have? And then I just saw you pick up a giant <laughs> box that hasn't even been opened yet. <laughs> it hasn't been opened yet. Yeah, I just got this yesterday via UPS. It is William Eggleston Chromes. Steidel, the German publisher, has published a number of photo books by William Eggleston. And Chromes was the first one that they published back in 2011 or 2012. It's three volumes, about 700 pages. Now, for a photo book, that's an awful lot of pictures, right? Yeah. These are big books. These are all photos, chromes, because Kodachromes, from around the time of William Eggleston's Guide, which was the book that made him into a well-known photographer. It was around the time of his first uh, exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. If I look on Amazon today, Amazon US, a used copy of this book from the original 2011 edition is going for $2,000. Now, one of the problems with photo books is they tend to go out of print. They're really expensive to print. A book like this, a publisher is going to sell a few thousand and then they just can't afford to reprint it. Yet Steidel has decided to reprint this book, much to my pleasure because it's the only one I don't have of these big Eggleston sets. And it's currently listed at 350 on Amazon US. If you buy it from the publisher, it's 280 euros. It was free shipping to here. I don't know about to the US. And in a month, the price goes up to 380. So you're really getting it for something like what? Well, the dollar is about the same as a euro. So $275 mm -hmm. plus shipping. For a book that was long out of print and sold for extremely large amounts of big piles of dollars. And it's really, it's a weird kind of business, the photo book business, the collection, the speculation. There are people who buy these books, keep them sealed, like Star Wars toys and stuff. They keep yeah. them sealed to wait 10 years to sell them. But this is an extraordinary set of pictures. I just love this stuff. This one, Los Alamos Revisited, which was a snapshot at another time. Um, the Democratic Forest, these three big sets that came out several years ago. Outlands that came out uh, early this year, which the title told me they've already reprinted it. It sold out so much. And, and that's kind of interesting that Eggleston now has gotten to be a photographer where his books reprint. Given the cost and the, the size of these books, it is quite surprising. Yeah. So if you don't have any of these, you might not be able to get the Outlands anymore. You will be able to get Chromes for a while. I don't know if they're going to reprint the reprinting. Eggleston's work is extraordinary. It's really worth, uh, you know, we, we've talked many times about looking at photo books to develop the photographer's eye. At a minimum, get William Eggleston's guide. It currently looks to be out of print on... Amazon US, but there's plenty of uh, third-party sellers. Uh, that'll give you an idea of his work. But Chrome's is, is really uh, an amazing selection of photos that is not to be missed. It is going to have pride of place in my photo book library. All right, that's enough. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.